Hi, welcome to Around Town, where we seek to discover insights into places, events, topics, and issues that you want to know about in our great city. I'm your host, Nick Bergfeld, with producer Chuck Luck. Today, we'll be talking with Steve Newsom, the general manager and partner of English Newsom Sellers. Steve, thanks so much for coming on today. Absolutely. What's your connection to Lubbock? Grew up in a cotton farming family about 30 miles west of here. Went to high school in Leveland. Married my high school sweetheart. She's a tech grad. I'm a Wayland grad. Raised both our kids out there on the farm just outside of Lubbock. You know, when you're from one of these small towns around, we'll tell each other in the Lubbock area where we're from. But when you travel, you're from Lubbock. If you're within 50 miles of Lubbock, you're from Lubbock. So I'm from Lubbock. What are some of your earlier memories about the city of Lubbock and the community here? I was born in uh, 69, I'm going to date myself here, and one of the first stories I remember my mom telling me was was the tornado, pointing out the building downtown that she said was leaning, and probably one of my funnest memories as a kid, I came up with the first generation that really enjoyed the mall. That was a big deal. Anybody that grew up in my era, coming from Leveland, there was nothing cooler than Reese Air Force Base. Nothing cooler. If you did everything right and you behaved, my mom would pull over the side of the road right as we went through Reese and... Let us get flown over. What was it like to raise a family here? I'm grateful we raised family in this area. The local schools we raised kids in, there was always good communication, good common sense, focus on the education, obviously higher level of discipline probably in my generation and even the generation before, but always based on good common sense. And I think that's just real reflective of Lubbock. Did you always know that agriculture was something that you'd pursue? Had absolutely no doubt whatsoever. To this day, you can give me any title you want to give me, but I'm a farmer. That's what I do. When it comes to farming, how did you make choices about the types of crops that you would grow? The situation that I grew up in, my dad went through everything, the worst of the farm crisis from the 70s and 80s that you could. As a kid, I wasn't watching him to see his mistakes. You know, as a kid, you watch your father more to see what they do right. He was a dryland cotton farmer, farmed a little bit of irrigated I'd watch him work and work and work, and then we'd hit the dry spells. The one thing I did know from the time I was a kid was if I farmed, I was going to be able to irrigate. The family I was raised in, it wasn't a moneyed family. When me and my wife, Cindy, got ready to start farming, we literally started from zero. It's kind of a standing joke amongst farmers. Started at zero, and if I can just have 10 more good years, I'll get back there. I had a monumental challenge. It didn't feel like a challenge. It was a labor of love, cash flowing and getting where we needed to be. From the start, I was looking for irrigated land. That's what I wanted to rent, first land purchases I ever made. And when I originally started farming, the grape industry, as you know, had kind of come and gone here two or three times. There's abandoned vineyards all over the plains. And it intrigued me, but it didn't really spark my interest real strong until around early 2000, I read an article about how much less water grapes used. It got even more so when my kids got about junior high and started showing real interest in the farm. I'm farming cotton. I'm dealing in a global market. We're battling the fears that we're dealing with with Ogallala. We'd seen a few dry years through there. And so I got pretty open-minded almost from the time I started farming, looking at alternative crops. And that didn't go over real good in the family I was in. My granddad was a cotton ginner. His dad farmed cotton. He farmed cotton. My dad farmed cotton. You farm cotton if you're going to farm. And I tell people this jokingly, but it's really the truth. First crop I ever planted that wasn't cotton, you'd have genuinely thought I had just committed the biggest sin ever. And I think the first thing I ever planted that wasn't cotton was probably peanuts. They got popular back late 90s, and I jumped right in and tried some. 
my dad told me, my granddad told him, says, don't worry, son, he'll be back. <laughs> it's just peanuts. We're not leaving the church. It's going to be okay. I had a real open mind to looking at alternative things as a real young man and tried some things and failed, tried some other things, succeeded, figured out pretty quick, even though the infrastructure here is built best for cotton. We've got the mill, we've got the compress, we've got the chins, we've got, for lack of a better description, the banking system here is much more friendly to cotton than anything else. We can grow other things here. We've proven that successfully. Grapes are my favorite example, but I still farm cotton. What would you say it is about you that motivated you to try these alternative crops? There's something to farming here. We already have a lot of challenges. A lot of the cotton industry, when I was a kid, looked at our cotton like it was lower quality, like you couldn't yield as much. We embrace these challenges here. So looking at something new for the average Texas High Plains farmer, I'm not unique in this sense. They're generally pretty open-minded. Well, I'll just give you an example. Drip irrigation grew as fast or faster here than nearly anywhere in the world because of the way the local farmers embraced it. Precision farming. This is one of the most widespread adapted precision farming areas in the world. Got all these different challenges that we have to meet just farming here, and grapes fit right in with that. And I'll jump ahead here and we can come back to this, but I'll tell you just right here at the onset, the reason the Lubbock area has exploded so successfully and the state of Texas so successfully in the wine industry so quick has been because the farmers in the Lubbock area embraced it. You had a group of individuals here, men and women, that were used to challenges, used to you telling them that's not going to work and then proving you wrong. And I had good mentors that had done that for me as a young man. You know, they already know the weather. They know efficient chemical use. They definitely know efficient irrigation use. They had so many pieces of the puzzle already put together. They just needed to adapt to the changes of growing that particular crop versus what they'd already done. 90% of the challenges were exactly the same. You had mentioned your relatives being skeptical about different types of crops. How did your kids feel about these different experimentations and ultimately going into wine? Oh, they loved it. My son is farming now. You know, he's decided to make a career of this, and he's definitely more towards the grapes and the specialty crops is more where his main interest is. He farms a little bit of cotton. Now, I worked them hard. I mean, I worked them hard because grape farming is very, very old school. And let me elaborate on that. If you ask me April 15th to lay out a plan on cotton, I could pretty much lay you out a plan and probably not deviate from planting to first irrigation, first fertilization, and I can just go on and on. I can give you a pretty close plan to what we're going to follow within a few days. Grapes, you're going to touch every single vine multiple times through the year. It's going to change based on heavy rainfall, lack of rainfall, temperature. It's very, very old school farming. There's the automation. You don't have the GMO, the technologies for insects, et cetera. You've got to roll up your sleeves and you've got to put a shadow in a vineyard where we can really manage cotton much more with technology and grapes aren't so kind to you. They demand your presence. Is there a style that you yourself prefer? I love farming grapes. I really do. The cotton's in my blood. It's really benefited me well. The experience and the knowledge growing up that way and the experience I had coming ahead of planting grapes, don't make me choose. Let me love them both. They both are extremely rewarding. You know, we've had two or three years now without a grape crop for different reasons. Those challenges for a farmer, they could beat you down, but they just motivate us just to do better every single year. At what point did you know as you were growing grapes that this was something you wanted to go all in on? 
I didn't think I'd gone all in until I came up with some grapes that didn't have a contract or a home. And that's when I realized I'd gone all in. And if you look at our acres, you would still probably almost view our grapes as a hobby farm compared to farm 5,000 acres of cotton's a small to medium-sized farmer now. And 100 acres of grapes is a massive undertaking. Your average, even your farmer-sized vineyards are usually 40 acres or less, even with professional farmers, just because difference in management, a little bit because of marketing. We could probably use 60, 70 more good, productive wineries in the state. Lubbock would benefit from that more than anybody else in the state, really. And we'll be right back with Steve to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. We're speaking with Steve Newsom, the general manager and partner of English Newsom Cellars. I want to come back to the wine industry out here. What are your general thoughts about where it's been and where it's going? First and foremost, I'll stand toe-to-toe with anyone on this one. It doesn't exist in Texas without Lubbock. It just does not. Not only is it that the majority of the grapes are grown out here for the reasons we talked about earlier, for the professional farmers embracing it, et cetera. Climate-wise, we can grow as high-quality grape here as you can anywhere in the world. And we have challenges, and probably the two challenges that would stand out in any grower's mind, they stand out in mine, are late freezes. We get as much, probably, or more hail here, any wine-growing region you'd find. Outside of those two, this is almost as perfect as you can get. There's two or three reasons. First and foremost, elevation. Lubbock's about 3,200. Where my vineyards are located out west, we're 400 feet higher. It's right at 3,600. What that does, it gives us a diurnal temperature shift every day, anywhere from 20 to 30 degrees. This creates a really good sugar and acid profile. Now, on top of that, low relative humidities are huge. We get a rain, we're going to battle powdery mildew to a degree, maybe even downy. But compared to other regions of the world, we don't have an issue. You look back on this spring, everybody cuss the wind. As a rule, the wind is one of our best friends in the wine growing business. Let's say we get a two-inch rain. It happens around here fairly regular. A lot of people don't believe that, but we do get two-inch rains. Within 48 hours, we may be back at 20% relative humidity because of the wind and the elevation. That is ideal. And then you combine the additional solar radiation we get at this elevation, and this is a great place to grow grapes. Now, you ask about the industry, and I took off chasing a rabbit. We're kind of at a crossroads. We're probably where California was in the late 60s, early 70s. And there's still a lot of skepticism about, hey, is this going to work? We're running here now right at 30 years of solid, good production in vineyards and wineries to a lesser degree. And the two industries are very unique in that they almost like stand on their own. You've got your grape growers, and that's where Lubbock really shines. And then you've got your wineries and your wine production. And one of the things that's made Texas unique and has been a challenge is the majority of our wineries went up down in the hill country where the population centers are. Off the air a while ago, we were discussing the differences in wineries at Fredericksburg and not in Lubbock. They built their industry down there about, hey, come relax with us. This is the reason you're coming to see us out at Fredericksburg. And up here, there's a little bit more of an industrial mentality towards the wine production, if you will. To me, it's not that that's necessarily a better place. They're a step or two ahead of us. Me personally, I prefer to grow and produce my wine in the same place. 
So what we have to do now, you've got your grapes up here, grower growing them, goes through harvest, put it on a refrigerated truck after harvest, ship it down to Fredericksburg, and they make the wine down there. We've managed to make it work again and again. I don't know why we can't make it work right here. They want our grapes up there, but they kind of want us to stay out of the wine industry, if you will. The state of the industry is healthy. We just got some challenges on top of that. We've got challenges convincing consumers. And if you read much on the Texas consumer, they're one of the most loyal consumers in the world. Texans will buy Texas before they'll buy anything else. With one caveat, Texans are about the most skeptical consumers in the world. You're not going to sell them a bill of goods or they just love a particular California or they love a particular Italian wine. But if you ever get a Texan to taste your product, and you can go apples and apples, that Texan's going to buy your product. What have been some of the milestones for the industry out here? This story was told to me when I first got in the industry, why this industry took off this time and stuck. You tell people from outside of Texas, Texas never formally repealed prohibition. That's why we have to have a vote, dry town, dry county, et cetera. And that allowed for laws to be written that benefited certain segments of the industry more than others. Up until about 2000, I'll use what used to be Tasha Sellers, what's English Newsom now, and was Caprock for a while as an example. The reason it was built out there is the same reason the strip was out where it was. Had you built that winery in Lubbock in the late 80s when it was built, you could not sell your own product out of it because of the way the laws are written. So somewhere around 2000, what they tell us and where the fact meets the myth is somewhere here in between. So someone's listening, they know the law better than me, they're welcome to correct me because I'd love to know the exact. But what I was told when I came into the industry, there was a, a law that they got passed in California, Oregon, Washington, and we kind of copied it. And for lack of a better term, they call it the farmer winery law. They tried to push this law through in Texas before, and every time either the beer lobby, liquor lobby, distributor lobby, somebody got it crushed. Rick Perry, Susan Combs, and George W., when he was governor here, paved the way for this to happen for us. And here it is in a nutshell. We caught some of those lobbyists fighting each other back in the late 90s. Perry and Combs got us to pull this law through TDA as a new crop. And the law basically stated you can open a winery. There's three rules. It can't be 300 foot of a school. It can't be 300 foot of a church or hospital. And it's got to be 75% Texas-grown grapes. When that law passed, there was 26 wineries. Three of them were in Lubbock. That was right around 2000. In 2011, there was over 300. Sounds exciting. But individuals like myself were planting grapes as fast as we could, and we weren't catching those wineries. So the state allowed these wineries to buy grapes from outside of the state. What do you think California, Washington sold these Texas wineries? Take a guess what they didn't want. You've got a brand new industry, and we're planting grapes fast as we can, but you're three or four years coming to maturity. And people are thirsty for wines in all these wineries, using air quotes, these wineries, because a lot of them were tasting rooms, you know, that were just excited and seen an opportunity. And there were some wines that most likely got produced early on that maybe we wouldn't be so proud of today. You fast forward to 2013. Now, keep in mind, California's at a million acres. At that time, Texas is at 4,000. Acre for acre, Texas wines won more gold at the San Francisco International than California. People that knew wine, knew grapes, that was a big deal. They had to turn and look at this state at that point. Something's going on in Texas is what they're seeing at this point. We just needed to get all the pieces of the puzzle. But the biggest thing that changed it was that law getting passed. I didn't realize a lot of those down there in that Fredericksburg, Gillespie County area, those had to fall under that. It was a huge benefit to the state as a whole. Wineries blew up all over the state. I think there's permanent over 500 now. 
Then you have the marketing challenges because what grows best right here isn't necessarily what grows best maybe in California. We meet this challenge every single day in the winery. People know two things more than they know anything else. They know three varietals, Cabernet, Chardonnay, Moscato. Those are the three, and that's because those are the three that blew up in California. That's not necessarily what grows best here. What does grow best out here? I'm going to be real broad with this brush. We can grow anything here. People don't realize some of the highest cot yields in the world have come from the Lubbock area. Same thing with corn, same thing with all these other crops. What grows best, we can grow the most beautiful Cabernet here. We got bragging rights on lots of awards we won with Cabernet, but it doesn't yield well here. It doesn't like our wind in May and June for pollination. So you've got this challenge of educating your consumer when they come into your winery about, look, taste this. This is a beautiful wine. You've never heard of it. You get that intimacy in a tasting room. You don't get it on the shelf. And it's a big challenge. I could name about a half a dozen that we just love growing. Tempranillo grows great here. Morvedra grows great here. Vignet does fabulous here. So if someone's coming in and they want to do business with the local business and they show up at my tasting room, I get the opportunity to be intimate with them and show them, look, this is what we grow well here. This is what won these awards and go through it. And I've got a customer. I don't get that in the retail space. And it's a huge challenge growing our varietals. What do you think it is that will scale the industry? Is it more national, international recognition or more of a changing palette of the Texas consumer. I would think exactly what we're doing right here. We pour in the local stores. Wine is an experience. I feel like my staff out at the winery does as good a job as anyone in Lubbock I could ever ask them to do, educating consumers, taking care of customers, et cetera. What we really need is we need a chunk of what's being sold of California wines over here with us. And that just took time and time and time and time and work. And that's really what it took. And that's really what we're up against here. And we'll be right back with Steve to continue our conversation on Around Town on 89.1. Welcome back to Around Town. Our guest today is Steve Newsom, the general manager and partner of English Newsom Cellars. I want us to focus on English Newsom Cellars. How did you decide that this was something you wanted to pursue? Just ending up in the wine industry as a whole, honestly, was not a plan that I had. I really do enjoy farming. I'd become extremely passionate about the wines, and I think one of the things that really ruined me I was selling grapes to Becker down at Fredericksburg when I first planted. And the first wine that they ever came through, and they sent us two cases right before Christmas of 100% our grapes, and you were able to share that. That's an intimacy that's hard to describe to people. The things that we had done to plant, to grow the grapes, and then to be able to share the wine, that really fired an intimacy in me and a deep passion. When I first started producing and selling grapes, I would be in asking a hundred questions. I was a grower that probably drove them nuts. You know, I wanted to know about what yeast they were using and why they did a particular thing. Off the air a while ago, we were talking about kind of how I got in this. We kept planting and we were having no problem selling our grapes. I could just go plant five acres of anything. Somebody would take it in this industry. Kind of overnight, back around 2012, 13, 14, up to 15, the grape acres jumped past the demand farm. We didn't really know, have we screwed up? We're going to be dumping grapes in the bar ditch. And we got together with a couple other growers over there in Hockley County. Trilogy Cellars was our first foray into the wine part of it. I'd been farming since almost right out of high school. I farmed through college. And I'd been, for the most part, kind of out there by myself, not having to work on social skills, language of a farmer. On Friday and Saturday night, Wednesday night, I'm up at Trilogy pouring and describing wines. Found a gear I didn't know I had. 
when you love something like that, when you've got that history and that intimacy, you don't have to really think about describing your wines. You can talk more about the vineyard, the growing year. So we had some decent success in international awards at that brand. Our family in that partnership had more acres than the others, and we had more available grapes. So we kind of started looking at doing something different and got word that uh, Tommy English at that time was trying to sell Caprock that he had bought. And I went and visited with him, and he'll tell you to this day, he's not a wine guy. He doesn't get involved in day-to-day activities in the cellar. We see him fairly often, but he gave me a price, and I'd tell him the same things here. I couldn't make the price he gave me work, and I told him as much. But we kind of got to be friends. And over time, I kind of laid out my business model for him for what I saw. And my business model, as he would tell you if he was here, is not a profitable business model because it is quality first. I don't just say that. I'm not going to fight like we fight on the farm and in the vineyard to come in here and shortcut our wines when we get them in here. I also had the extremely good fortune of the first winemaker I hired out at the winery, a guy named Anthony Mosley, of being one of the hardest working, most disciplined individuals I'd ever worked around. Anthony was such a good influence for me that to this day, the influence and the discipline and the work ethic that he really embedded in us early is still paying us huge dividends. Got fortunate to be around some really, really good people. That really did help me. How do you think about the types of wine that you're going to produce? If we had known we were going to end up in the industry, I wouldn't have planted so many different varietals. It makes it a challenge. Most of your wineries would tell you, you know, six to 10 wines is a pretty good number. I was planting whatever I thought I could sell when I was just strictly as a grower. You know, I looked up here and I've got 20 plus varietals. Here's the benefit of that is nearly every year, one of those produces well, but it would be much simpler to have about 10 varietals and just be producing like that. About the biggest questions we ever have, the whites, we pretty much stay on a plane of of how we're going to do it. Reds, you'll get the opportunity to say, are we doing a full bodied red or are we doing a rosé? And rosés are a heck of a lot of fun to make. They're a lot of fun to sell. That's about the biggest challenge we come up against. And then any full bodied reds in Texas you're nearly always short of. Seems like that's the varietals that we meet challenges with on yields. But at the end of the day, we have managed to put something together here that just keeps consistently producing quality. I need to double check this number. This is in five vintages. We're somewhere around 31 best of class in international competitions. Our Cabernet, and you'll hear me cuss Cabernet in the vineyard because it's a challenge. Our Cabernet's the only that I know of, Texas Cabernet, to have ever won a 99-point double gold at San Francisco International, grown right outside of Lubbock, produced right here in Lubbock. No magic, no chemicals, just damn good weather and a little bit of luck. This hidden talent of yours for customer service, for sales, what did it feel like when you first realized that this was a part of you, that this was something that you could be passionate about? I think you're a little too kind calling it a hidden talent. I think I'm extremely blessed. I really do. I mentioned Anthony just happened to come into my life. Anthony Mosley, my first winemaker. Kyra Simmons that works out at the winery. It's another one that's just been a blessing. She's made my life so easy. She allows me to go do what I need to do in the vineyard. I could name a dozen other people that have just been so good for us. Mariah Deerdorf, she came in as just tasting room staff initially. She's got a master's in chemistry, and we knew we had an opportunity with her. I don't know if it's so much, honestly, that I have a hidden talent that I've just been extremely, extremely fortunate that there's been some fabulous people cross my paths at the right time. The intimacy of what we get to do as farmers and as wine producers, 
I think that's one reason wine is such an experience. I really do. I'm not unique in this. There's people in California, there's people in Italy, there's people here in Lubbock that are just as passionate about this as I am. For the wine listener out there, do you have any rules of thumb around how to think about buying wines? Yeah, I do. There's no book that says this is right. This is my personal experience. People come in the winery a lot and they'll tell me, I can't drink red wines because they give me a headache. And I'll tell them every time, drink mine. And it won't because we don't use chemicals in the winemaking process. And what I feel like I've discovered, and no one has confirmed this with me, I feel like there's a sweet spot on whites from about $13.99, $14 up to about 20 I feel like you're going to get a good quality wine that hasn't aged too long. You're not paying for a super award, and it's most likely made quality. And with reds, big, bold reds, $21.99 seems to be a really good price point. Now, it's not because I have some of those in that price point. It's just coincidental. Our philosophy isn't something magical or something that makes us more righteous than anybody else. We just want to do a good job. We want to look you in the eye when you come in that winery pouring you something that we would feel just as good about pouring our parents, our families, whoever. We want to know that it's a quality product, that we're not gouging you. I'd love to make some money. Don't get me wrong. So I think it's a pretty good rule of thumb. For someone out there interested in getting involved in the wine industry out here, what recommendations do you have for them? Let me elaborate a little bit more on this. And I'm not a Debbie Downer on it at all. I'm, I'm anything but a pessimist. The challenge initially is investment, if you wanted to put in a vineyard, because even since I've started planting grapes, it's gone up astronomically. It's probably about 20000 an acre just to plant a vineyard and get it up to production. You know, you're looking at a commercial vineyard, 10 acres, you drop $200,000 and you're going several years without income. I would recommend if somebody was really interested in planting grapes, reach out to uh, Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. It's txwines.org. They've got some really good information. Find you an experienced grape grower mentor. Find somebody that's been through a late freeze and been through a few hailstorms and some stuff like that. They'll be really good people to help if that's the direction you want to go. Find a winery looking for grapes. You need a contract. I believe you're going to see Texas continue to grow. I believe we're number four in the nation right now in wine production. One thing I would advise, if you're shopping for wines, retail location anywhere in Texas, read your label and look for Texas High Plains on that label. You know it came from the Lubbock area. So you know it was grown by someone who knew what they were doing, someone who was passionate about what they were doing. Do I want you to look for English Newsom Every time. But if you're not, look for Texas High Plains. Steve, that's all the time that we have today. Thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate you having us. Thanks for listening to Around Town. I'm your host, Nick Berkfeld. This show was produced by Chuck Luck. Our guest today was Steve Newsom, the general manager and partner of English Newsom Cellars. Join us next Friday morning at 9 a.m. on 89.1. For more information on Around Town or to listen to previous episodes, visit ttupublicmedia.org.